This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode... You can't talk about colonization of any sort in the United States and Canada without having an Indigenous perspective. So that's been that's been my badge. So it's really gave me a little bit, not a little bit, a lot of purpose to life. And I know, I and mean, I'm pretty confident to say that I'll probably be working until, until I'm 100 years old. A conversation with Sadie Redwing. All right, I am honored to to welcome Sadie Redwing to this podcast series. And first, I want to start with a land acknowledgement. Oakhead University acknowledges the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat. And I am presently on the ancestral and traditional territories of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which we stand and create. And Sadie, would you like to start with an introduction? So hello, everybody. My name is Sadie Redwing. I am currently assistant professor here at OCADU in uh, Toronto, Canada. I am a citizen of the Spirit Lake Dakota Nation out of Fort Totten, North Dakota. And I also am half Cheyenne River Lakota. So a lot of Lakotas, Dakotas, Nakota, South Dakota, North Dakota. There's a lot of them in there. But just to know that within talking about my work and where I come from, you'll hear me uh mention more of Great Plains perspective within the Teton Wong of the Midwest territories within North and South Dakota. Yeah, I'm super happy to uh, start this off. Great. And I actually, I, I saw you and reached out to you because I had been in a conference in 2019 called Design Plus Diversity and saw you give this amazing presentation. It's on YouTube. I'll put it in the show notes for, for this about indigeneity and design. And so then I reach out to you and say, I'd really love to have you on this podcast. And I'm at this university in Toronto and you come back and you're like, yeah, I'm actually assistant professor there now. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> no, we could have been having a cup of coffee right now, but. Right. It, it is. I'm actually going to attend precisely one class in person next month. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about that for the, the finale. So could you talk a little bit about sort of your background and your relationship to design as you came up and evolved? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I'm originally from the Midwest, definitely a Midwest gal. So North Dakota, South Dakota, not a lot of design influence in the area. Just a means of jobs, just examples of what great design, and that could be visual design, system design, or whatever it may be. So I grew up in a real rural area, very influenced by pop culture, growing up in the 90s. So definitely had a strong influence of creativity based on what you see on TV and music. I didn't come from any encouragement to be an artist, and I didn't really know what a graphic designer was. I just knew what I liked, being attracted within mainstream pop, pop culture uh, media. So I think how I started in my journey was more of the fact that in growing up and being an adult, I knew that I wanted to go to a tribal college. And it was not so much that I had an area of interest. I didn't know what degree to go in. I just want to go to a tribal college. And as you're going through that process and you figure out what you excel in, what you don't excel in, looking at like just transcripts or just classes that I enjoyed, I just really advanced in the art aspect. And part of that was just my interest in my friends groups. There's just a lot of creative minds, particularly working within peers that want to be musicians, doing community events, working within mural design or graffiti, or just how to adorn your laptop and skateboards with stickers and whatnot. So just being in that presence or having like tangible pieces that make a community feel unique or giving us a little bit of identity. We didn't really have that. If I were to want to be in a position to make t-shirts or make stickers or just stuff that I thought was cool, how would you even do it? And I came across a brochure with the Institute of American Indian Arts, and they were the only tribal college that had a new media arts program. And I thought that was it. My journey really starts when I step foot on the Institute of American Indian Arts campus. So leaving the Midwest, going to Santa Fe, New Mexico, 
And I didn't know. And even today, like I didn't realize that my experience at tribal college would be something that I would have to bring with me into some of these spaces, particularly when we're talking about targeting more indigenous demographics. How do we keep student retention, particularly to Native American students? So this was really like influential on my experience going through IAI. And one of the reasons why IAI worked, not necessarily a design focus, but it worked in having resources to keep an underrepresented student retained. And part of that was being in a classroom space where other of your classmates share the same ideologies as you. The professor looks like you. We're going to a library that has predominantly indigenous authors in it, which is a small library, but it's still a one locally on campus. You can go to the cafeteria and get food with tribal influences. And I feel like a tribal college did a really good job at demonstrating what an ideal utopia of an institution or university would work as for a student. I didn't realize it then. I didn't appreciate and respect it then. But now that I look back and share like my journey, I do really pinpoint specific elements of my experience all four years. Left there in 2013 and got an internship at NASA within Cape Canaveral, Florida. So left New Mexico, went to Florida And really, that was probably my first time being in a position where I'm leaving a community I'm so comfortable in. It's like family to me. Like I'm just in my own little universe with the creatives, getting a chance to see modern art, traditional art, understanding how to talk about repatriation, how to talk about regeneration or reclaiming, getting to know laws about art and Indian craft or just like policies around art and Indian craft within the United States, like all these policies and how do you protocol objects and how do you talk about visual sovereignty and it's like fight against the government but maybe fight against museums on getting some belongings that were stole from us and that could be anything between household items from like the 1300s or even human remains you don't learn that at a mainstream <laughs> or a westernized institution that doesn't have a large uh, demographic focus but it means to be a native american professional working within art designer craft you gotta know these things and no one's teaching them so uh, again very fortune to go to IAI. And then when I went to NASA, that comfort rug was just ripped underneath for me because now it's our first time being vulnerable, immersed in a professional space at NASA. And now it's weird because I don't see anybody that looks like me. I got people who probably never even heard of what it, what a Lakota or Dakota nationality is. 2013 was a totally different time around what inclusivity feels like in a workspace. When I contrast my experience with NASA, it was just really uncomfortable. And I just knew that I just didn't want to be there. It just wasn't my cup of tea. It just wasn't my peer group. And I just didn't feel like it could thrive in that space. And then it came up to what's the next step or what's well, where to next? And I had a couple options. One, I could go join the military or I could go get a master's. And I decided to go get a master's, ended up at North Carolina State University and kind of the same thing. I'm going into a space where there's no cultural competency. We're not learning about terminology that is uh, relevant to maybe my area of study. But one of the reasons why I wanted to go there is how do you even research? How do you become an educator? How do you teach graphic design? And I think some of the challenges for myself was if I'm bringing a whole library or a whole vocabulary with me that people don't experience in their daily lives, then it's hard to get responses. So it's hard to get feedback. It's hard to have a really solid critiques, particularly if, if I'm the first Native American that someone has met sitting in that classroom. If I had mentors who had never had a Native American student before, this is really challenging in means of just acquiring resources or just even trying to paint the picture of what my goals are, wanting to be an educator. So it was tough, but it worked. Made it in uh, 2016. I graduated North Carolina State, and I left there with a thesis, uh, learning the Lakota visual language through shape play. That was really challenging pre-2016, because you got to remember a lot of stuff hasn't happened yet, meaning that the dropping of racist mascots hasn't happened. George Floyd incident didn't happen. The pandemic didn't happen. So there was a, like a little stint in the last three years from now that we just 
were very progressive in that could have been within our politics and many things that were going on. So pre-2016, we still had racist mascots. So there's still strong conversations around stereotypes that are harmful. And I felt like I brought in a lot of <laughs> kind of issues in some way. There's two main things that are relevant within my journey and my goals and that's kind of led me into this space was as a student, and as an inspiring educator, when I come into the space, I might be the only one in the room that has an obligation. And that's not an obligation. It's an honor to go teach at a predominantly Native American community, First Nations, Indigenous community. When I sit in a classroom, like say at North Carolina State, no one in that room has that same obligation. Just a means of how do you teach and how do you target this type of material to a, to an audience as sensitive, I think that wasn't a goal. And if it was, it wasn't as vocal as it could have been. The second thing was if I'm working with a demographic or working with students who might be on a little more vulnerable side, we're just at the very beginning of that generation wanting to learn language and really getting immersed in like more of a cultural context because now they're the ones that are hearing diversity, inclusion, equity. And I feel like just there isn't a blueprint of what that looks looks like working with Native American students. It's so interesting. So interesting. That's still the case now. So I I had a lot of frustrations leaving there. Just a means of, look, like everything that we're learning at a graduate level in pertaining to research and graphic design, it's all future trends and it's all wealth. Meaning that, again, times are changing a little bit, but just a means of us being experts in spaces. Being within that design research, there was really a, a strive in the future trends route. So meaning that we're learning about how to be graphic designers, working with augmented reality, working within uh, virtual reality spaces, thinking about artificial intelligence, I feel like I could take all this information and bring it back to a real space and it wouldn't be needed because in a lot of the areas, a lot of demographics, the students that I target with, we're poor, we're rural, right. like we have horrible cell phone service, internet service. We don't have the the infrastructure for beautiful computer labs or just even software or how can we get laptops or just even sometimes phones in some of these kids' hands. So it means having to advocate just resources. How do you even bring in um, this concept of introducing software, but then also wanting to maintain a culture that has been on the verge of extinction. And there's just all these complexities and so many layers, which we'll get into when we talk about this concept around decolonization. But just to really be in a situation, man, like I'm going to be an educator. I got to go back home. None of my students are going to have uses for Oculus goggles or like little like <laughs> augmented reality like things because we're just not ready yet. We're not there yet. And no one is thinking about us within that space. And if they are, they're not doing much in that in advancement route. I kind of left North Carolina State with a little bit of frustration. I just wanted that piece. I wanted to walk across the stage, get my piece of paper and be um, prepared to go back and to teach, whether they be at a tribal college, within a reservation space, at a place as a larger indigenous po uh, population. And I felt like when I left there, I the angst that I felt was, why was it so hard for me to just develop a thesis when I, it was hard to communicate what my areas of interest are, when I'm trying to funnel all these design issues specific to indigenous communities into one project. And I felt like I'm happy and fortunate that I left there with what I did. But then also, too, I felt like following North Carolina State, more and more cans of worms were starting to open once we started to be a little bit more vocal on why that sucked <laughs> for a student like me. But then also if we're if you're taking a, a class in graphic design history and we're learning all these elements of written forms of communication, styles of communication, semiotics and whatnot, what was getting frustrating in a lot of those spaces was you could read a graphic design history book and you can talk about just how the strong Roman influence within our type. We could talk about ancient forms of writing systems that can be uh, categorized within the realm of, of semiotics and everything that was written within those time periods that you get in your graphic design textbook, there's little to none exposure to design forms of communication or just even to just design thinking and systems of North America uh, that originate in are indigenous to North America. If you are to find those, they're usually in anthropology books. I hate this word primitive. I hate 
date being categorized in there, but primitive art, art history, American art history, it's always in the past. It's never relevant now. And it's never in the conversation of graphic design. It's always in the conversation of museums and stuff. So when I started to be more vocal and yo, like everything that you talk about within design curriculum, you share and demonstrate in all the design communities. So again, so during this time to get more introduced into spaces like AIGA, but there's nothing pertained to United States, Canada, or even, I just feel bad for uh, tribes in Mexico. They're not even federally recognized. That's a whole continent. <laughs> like we're, It's a huge gap missing. So when I started to be a little bit more vocal and express those feelings in more design communities, it really led me to thinking like, wow, do we really live in a continent that has slow, low to none competency of Native American First Nations, indigenous culture. What makes my job so hard compared to anybody else is that the hardest part of my job as a Native American graphic designer, as a Native American educator, the hardest part of any Native American educator's job is that the dominant population in North America cannot picture what a functioning continent looks like predominantly indigenous. There's no incorporation of systematic thinking, particularly when it comes to how we traveled within our trade routes, how tribes from the Antarctic would navigate all the way down in South America, down into Argentina and Chile. There's none of that. And just even like our food preservations, if there are so many tribes, we all spoke different languages. How do we interact? How can we communicate? If North America could envision that and know what that looks like and make my job thousand times easier. But as a design educator, now it's my job to paint the picture of what that looks like. It's been a really interesting journey. It's been a little bit of frustrating one, but just in means of, I, I understand the importance of why podcasts like this, why people are doing, you know, similar projects, because when we get into conversations on DEI, decolonization, then you want to have those conversations in North America. We're not talking about this in Africa. We're not talking about this in Australia or Asia. We're making resources here in the United States or Canada. And you can't talk about colonization of any sort in the United States and Canada without having an indigenous perspective. So that's been that's been my badge. So it's really gave me a little bit, not a little bit, a lot of purpose to life. And I know and I'm pretty confident to say that I'll probably be working until until I'm 100 years old. So it's nice. It's a fruitful job. It's hard sometimes, but it has led me into many things. Participating in the protests at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. I feel like in design communities, we, we like to be the first ones to jump on buzzwords and we like to be the first ones to jump on specific events. I'm fortunate that, yes, my time at Standing Rock has led me into conversations with the design communities, specifically when it comes to activism, advocacy, or being an advocate, which allowed me to be brought into spaces. I think AIGA was a really good help, particularly around chapters of inviting speakers. So I formulated this presentation called Fuck the Stereotype. And within Fuck the Stereotype, which is that diversity plus design presentation, hopefully I give some type of awareness of why it's so hard to find Native American designers. Why is it so hard to find us on Google search results? If you're somebody who is not familiar with that particular culture and you're designing something for Indigenous Peoples Day, Native American Heritage Month, or an event on campus, and all you go to is Google for inspiration or Behance or uh, 99designs or whatever it may be. And if all you're seeing is the stuff that we don't want you to represent us with, what do you do? So what are the first steps? So that's where Fuck the Stereotype came into play. And again, that was created before um, the dropping of the Washington R-word logo. And it was a beautiful time because that presentation has allowed me to travel all over the globe, to be honest. So then to know that you caught it, that... That was probably like my first lecture to the world, <laughs> like the, yeah. the the tip of the iceberg to introduce what this type of work is for myself. And essentially, that's led me into teaching positions. It's led me into more working with more Native American organizational groups like the American Indian College Fund in Denver, Colorado. And then knowing that more and more institutions, businesses, firms, organizations are pushing for more inclusivity, particularly in their handbooks and their missions. They're pushing for more decolonization and just ways to be sustainable. 
sustainable. And, and all those keywords fit into a cultivated Native American culture. So I've been doing my best to bridge those gaps or just really seeing, okay, our knowledge is needed in some of these spaces, not all. And then really trying to demonstrate what it looks like. So coming to OCAD, and knowing that OCAD U has a strong initiative of decolonization sustainability in their handbook. I don't see it in North America. So that's what kind of led me here is that this institution is looking to demonstrate what that looks like. And if they're putting indigeneity, indigenous perspective first, I want to experience it. I want to feel it. I want to know how you build something like that because there's not a lot of building going down in the United States. So Toronto. <laughs> so this is funny. We're two Americans that are connected to this university that's in Toronto. And one of my classes was with Alexandra Nawagabo, Indigenous Art, Culture and Communications, talking about this from a gallery perspective and about representation. There are so many threads that I want to tug at about this, but as an American, the discussion of like tribal colleges and universities, TCUs, right? I think there's the stereotype of Indigenous art or design being tethered to indigenous tooling that it's about only this sort of traditional artwork of rug making and dream catchers and things like that like that's the, the the kind of stereotype about this and a lot of the discussion that goes on in this is this recontextualization right like that if you haven't really engaged in indigenous communities in North America, for for example, there's this kind of Route 66, 1950s stereotype, like that it, it's a commodity to, to be sold and resold. And that, of course, continues to this day. But then there's been a dialogue, right? There are things about Western culture that have been infused either consensually or not into indigenous peoples. And that among that includes technology, right? The, the advent of cell phones, trucks. There are things that are part of the everyday life of indigenous peoples in North America that almost lend themselves to there being that sort of merging of indigenous traditional artistic ethics and the technology of today. And you had one project like that. So I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about, you had talked a little bit about that TCU environment being a safe space for that work. But then how do you take that safe space instead of just you being the, the one ambassador to NC State for that and make it something where it's embedded in design culture more broadly? Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like in the United States, people still haven't heard of a, a tribal college. And, and granted, there's only like 37 of them. There's not a lot. But just didn't think about like historical black colleges. I just feel we are really... We just lived in this world where if you're not talking about like Ivy Leagues and nothing else matters. It um, may not necessarily be the notion now, but think about like late 80s, early 90s or whatever, just even think about stress as students, you need to get in somewhere and thinking about, and again, this is speaking from personal experience of this being uh, my mom's first gen. So I'd be second gen going to college. And I don't think anyone prepped us. It was kind of more like you need to get grades, but it wasn't so much more about our wellness or being, it was just kind of more of following, okay, you have a better shot at a better job. Once you go to a more pristine college, Maybe you join a FRAX that might help you or a sorority, get an internship in there, doing the check marks that an average American student would do. When I went to Institute of American Indian Arts, my dad had many cousins who all went to the same tribal college. And I always thought that was just awesome. I was like, I never in elementary, middle school, high school, college, even to this day, he would just say, I never sat in a classroom with a relative or like a brother, a sister, a cousin, or a neighbor or something. At tribal college, if a classroom is predominantly indigenous and you're in a small, more rural community, you're probably sitting in a classroom with cousins or, um, or friends or maybe your neighbors. So I think I was always jealous that I didn't have that space. I went to high school in Des Moines, Iowa, and being the only native there just made me strive to just be immersed. And I just, just, it didn't even have to be someone of the same tribe as me. I just want to be like in a space there. So see Tonka College within Huron, South Dakota, that shut down. And that was going to be it. Like I was like, oh yeah, once I graduate, I'm going to see Tonka. Translates to Bigfoot College in South Dakota. And I wanted to go there because my aunties were there, my cousins were there. And it didn't fall through. So then I went to 
I, 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 again, I'm going in there a little bit ignorant and not thinking about what I'm about to be exposed to. But once I went there and that was it, and this is my first time Again, mind you, little 90s South Dakota country, all I know is my tribe. I don't get to see any other tribes, the surrounding tribes within the vicinity state. So think about Montana, Minnesota, Nebraska, Wyoming, like all those tribes are really similar to mine because we're in the plains, like we're in the prairie. So anything that within our culture, everything in all our tribal culture within the Midwest goes straight to the prairie. So if I'm going to New Mexico, now I'm going to the desert, the Southwest, now I'm seeing tribes I've never seen before. One thing that I really respect in that Santa Fe space is that those Pueblo nations, if anybody gets a chance to go to New Mexico and gets to see a Pueblo, man, those Pueblos are so strong, like just beautiful, humble people, but they're warriors, meaning that they're one of the few tribes that hasn't moved. This is really interesting if you get a chance to be immersed within a Pueblo nation in New Mexico. And man, like these are the ones that fought the conquistadors and like the Pueblo revolt. Like they could have been, man, if they started in Pueblo and those conquistadors pushed them up north towards us or pushed them somewhere. It'd be a whole, we live in a whole different world. But when you see what's there, there's a strong hub in that southwest of that Chaco Canyon and so many different fruits and vegetables that come out of there. So once I got to see and respect what sovereignty looks like. Those Pueblo nations were the first ones that really introduced me. And to see how they documented their histories and their trade routes, you can see it on their Pueblo pottery designs. So when you, so what's fortunate is that when you taking a class at II and you're learning, not necessarily anthropologists or archaeologists or museum experts, uh, description or definitions of like particular craft items, quotation mark, craft items. Now I'm actually hearing it from the actual tribe. And now they're seeing like, oh, like you see these parrot motifs, like the bird, the parrots are in the Southwest, but that's a story carried on that those tribes will go down south into Mexico and into South America and they trade feathers. If you look at a beautiful pottery or like a, a ceramic pottery piece and you can see these tropes or these motifs of foods and animals are not indigenous within the United States area. That's evidence that there's trade and travel. So once you get a chance to see that history with authenticity and accuracy, then it makes you think, man, so my tribe must do that. Or I, well, how does my tribe do the same thing? Because we did the same thing too. Even if we followed the buffalo and we're taking care of the prairie and not necessarily the desert. Like there, so there's many, there's a lot of connections in there. Another thing that that was so beautiful within the TCU space was I got to see how work in forms of documentation and writing and visual languages from thousands of years before contact, before Christopher Columbus was like a twinkle in anybody's eye, how those forms can be brought into a space where now it's like you get internet and tech and stuff. Now we're seeing just beautiful Pueblo-inspired graffiti or you see a lot in like fashion now, just to see what those concepts look, how do they survive in a contemporary space? And then usually it's the designer who designs it, who invents it and stuff like that. So in means of being in, immersed within indigenous tribes in the United States in one place, like, man, within my time at II, I was probably introduced like 300 tribes I never even heard of before. I mean, it's insane. And if I never even heard of those before, then I know an average American citizen hasn't heard of them before either. So once you get familiar and even too, like, it's just more, like, oh, a classmate of mine, I may not sit with them in the lunchroom and I may not... Um, talk with them or even be friends on social media with them. But when they get up in front of the classroom and show their artwork or show a critique and explain it, like they're educating me too. And again, that's uh, universal, but particularly I'm getting educated on a particular tribal visual language. And I felt, and I feel like a lot of people aren't fortunate in that sense. They can't sit in a classroom and get a chance to see if, if I have a classmate of a different tribe in my classroom, then I get to see different types of art styles, different types of ways of thinking. So something that's beautiful and it's not highlighted. So when I, so those feelings, I really do my best to bring into into a space. Before I started at OCAD, worked with American Indian College Fund, and I had a greater understanding of what inclusivity looks like. And I feel like TCUs, or particularly organizations that work in higher education, they demonstrate frameworks that fit to 
terminology that we use in DEI. The only thing is that they just do it, meaning that they've been doing it before any design community mentioned about diversity, inclusion, equity. So I feel like any time we're having a conversation like this, I always root back to how a tribal college works and how higher education organizations work. What people forget is that when you categorize indigenous peoples into one pan-Indian like race, then you're forgetting now how hard it is to work in a space, particularly with uh, tribal groups who you may have been to war with in the past, or you might be enemies with. So uh, in a space, so let's say if I'm sitting in a classroom and there's 15 of us, and there's five of the 15 who might come from a tribe that is enemies of mine, like we're not going to be disruptive and wild and have it be at confrontation. At the end of the day, we're here to do a goal. So I feel like when I use those experience, I bring a lot of those experiences into conversation around inclusivity. Our goal is to make sure that our students thrive and they thrive through based on resources that could be through funding, it could be through technology tools, it could be better programming. So there's more of a community feel in these spaces. So if those are the goals, anytime we enter into a meeting space, all of our issues are left at the door because the main thing is thinking about our youth. So if you hear conversation around th- conversation around seven generations ahead, that's a shared structure that we have. So when we come into a space, I feel like people forget that indigenous tribes, North America's big. I feel like people forget that sometimes. So that tribe, so a lot of us have different skin colors, depending on where you're at in North America. We're going to have a lot of tribes have different skin colors. We wear different adornments. We have different features. We have different languages. We have different foods. We have different everything. There's so much diversity in those tribal nations. And there is confrontation amongst tribes due to historical contexts. And all of those issues are left at the door because at the end of the day, when we're sitting around the table, the goal is that student. And I feel like, why can that not, why are those motives not shared elsewhere? It's happening at tribal college when there's so much diversity. Think about it. There's 600 federally recognized tribes in the United States. That's 600 different nationalities. And and I feel like, why are we having conversations <laughs> around not being inclusive when if, if it's being demonstrated that 500 different types of nationalities can work together, like we're the ones that are demonstrating it, but we're just so underneath the rug that people don't think about us. Think about I'm reaching out to maybe indigenous professional organizations to help train what inclusivity and diversity looks like in the space. So that's another reason why like the the student advocacy portion bridges some of those aspects, because everything that we're talking about in the design community, tribes have been doing it and they've been doing it. Hopefully people today won't have to feel what extinction's going to feel like to the point where it's like, all right, let's put our differences aside. Let's just get this shit done and then move on to the next thing. But I just feel like it's just... I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like we're going in circles. And if we're designers or inventors, like we, how can we haven't invented something a little bit better yet? As you're talking about this, I'm thinking about this kind of trope about like indigenous people in America, which is they're part of our heritage. That this is the opposite of inclusivity, right? It's co-option. It's like in the curio cabinet of Americana <laughs> is, is this image of headdresses and that they're all mashed together. And I think in your talk, you mentioned the, the, the California Republic image with New Mexican imagery instead of imagery from California and tribes and things. Similar to inaccessibility, where you just kind of paper over the actual fundamental holes in access, that you just have this patina, this veneer of indigeneity that sort of makes it that makes it look like everything is all good. And the effect of that is that it lets you not think about it. And I was thinking about this just to connect this to decolonization. In Communication Arts, you wrote this. This is the time for conversation about decolonization and respect in graphic design. We tribal designers are just now learning how to address issues that are culturally sensitive for us, like cultural appropriation, as it is still fresh to our nature to do. Our main focus is making sure our indigenous audiences are represented accurately, appropriately, and respectfully as we sustain an identity in the world. That part just 
really grabs me. A little story because it connects to uh, some, another thing that, that you said here. When I was in high school, I, I, I spent part of high school on the Navajo Nation in Tuba City, Arizona. And inside, like entirely encircled in the Navajo Nation is the Hopi Nation. And so there were Hopis that were going to Tuba City High School and there was just this tension and here I am, like, I come from Massachusetts. Like, I, I knew nothing about anything west of the Mississippi, much less, like, indigenous culture. And and I'm, like, completely out of my element and not understanding what the tension is in this. And it just underscores how little we ever really engage in this stuff at all. And so it's like, how do you do that as, like, a white person in North American culture without observation bias, without actually putting your finger on the scales. Because if you look at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, like that they've, they're heavily interventionist historically to the point of genocide, to the populations of North America. How can you actually connect without that paternalistic reaching in? Let me help you. Let me do this thing for you. I'm grinning over here because I'm just kind of imagining just a Massachusetts boy going to Tuba City because I know it's Tuba City. Oh my God. <laughs> but I want to I wanna come back to Massachusetts and thinking about what indigeneity looks like in graphic design. I mentioned that because people can't envision what the continent looks like predominantly indigenous, that makes my job a little bit more difficult. But now, what I'm noticing within the last four, five years or so is that it seems like, and I don't know why, I have no idea why this is, <laughs> and I'm biased, and you'll see, you'll understand why, but I get it, but I just, I get frustrated sometimes is that when people want to design, so think about people are in good nature, people and thinking about, we want to, we want to celebrate these holidays, we want to be respectful, we want to be inclusive, we don't want to pull a Coachella, appropriate anything. But it's always a non-Indigenous graphic designer's choice to look for a pattern or to look for a symbol or just a means of if it if they're trying to find a font, the font. Why is always the fonts that always have a lot of symbols in them, a lot of triangles? So it's just, yo, like, why is a pattern or something of an assortment of shapes that could be in a geometric form or whatever it may be, why is that the go-to when designing for Native American tribes. Why is your go-to automatically, you got to use symbols. And then even to, you want to develop a fairly vague, some type of shape form formulation that looks tribally. It's just a waste of time, <laughs> to be right. honest. So in that communication arts article, that was, I was uh, meaning that I wouldn't like, there'd be like, why would I be writing in Hebrew if I can't read it? If you're trying to mimic a form of writing or a form of documenting or archiving through symbols versus like Roman characters, why make fun of it? So I think sometimes the word exploitation, I think some people may not know when they're exploiting and the, they could be having great judgment, but they just don't have an example to compare what exploitation is. So in those situations, I say, yo, like Native Americans and First Nations, like we should be the easiest to design for. And one of the reasons why we should be the easiest to design for, because we read land. So this is when we get into talking about decolonization, we talk about visual sovereignty. To give a little bit of example, so going back to the South, if anyone's ever been in the Phoenix area, Tucson area, they have those mountains. The silhouette of those mountain ranges or the peaks, those tribes can read them, meaning that within the peak, so if you think of the peak or the pointiness or the shape of a peak, I know in Phoenix there's like a peak in a mountain that almost looks like a shark fin, but all yeah. those peaks in those mountain ranges, they hold stories. They might hold like creation stories or folk tales or whatnot, so I always yeah, say- Yeah, like this, the seal of the Navajo Nation has four peaks, like in the north, yeah. south, east, and west. And, and there, are, there are boundaries. This is where we've lived and it's a trend just right there in the imagery. Yeah, so I like using Arizona as a good example of a place that speaks, that shows visual sovereignty. If you look at something like the Phoenix Suns, or even to think about Phoenix, a very large urban Native American population. They're always doing like Native American family night at sporting events and stuff like that. People got to make flyers. Of course, you still see some of the corny symbolism and stuff on there. But just a means of if we're targeting that fan base that might go to a Phoenix Suns game in that fan base is familiar with those mountain histories, throw some mountains in there, make we're creative, we're artists, like make those mountains look a little bit more cooler or just even to the sunset colors 
in Arizona. There's beautiful types of purples and oranges and yellows. That's a color palette that reads to those different types of cacti species, different elements like prickly pear. You pull up a prickly pear, like there's so much design on there. Instead of going to using triangles, squares, circles, assemble them in a way that could be mocking, that could be exploiting. Like be creative and, and use land. Bring back some of those flowers. Flowers in the desert are different than flowers in the prairie. And I feel like when we're talking about those land motifs, it brings us into conversations around colonization. But in contrast, so Seattle, so they have the Mariners or the Seahawks. And that Seahawks is in that form, a line writing. But that if you look at the Seahawks logo versus like the Phoenix Suns, of course, are, are, this is just me come from my perspective, like the blues and the green speak to that foresty Northwest, like that ocean. You have the Pacific Ocean with some of those evergreens or pines or cedar trees. And then the indigenous people from the region, they can read that. They know that the form, those coastal lines, they're not like geometric patterns. They're more like a little bit more organic, almost like brush-like strokes. And some of that could be reflected because you guys have the ocean over there to see some of that organic flowing. So just even like little, just like little natural elements, I think people forget. Okay. So if you want to target that audience, you got to know the land. And then we get into talking about land acknowledgement. In this conversation on decolonization, I'm pretty upfront to say that it annoys me to see the conversation on decolonization being shared and creating resources that are not useful for those who have been colonized in the United States or Canada. What's the use of having this conversation when you don't have an indigenous person present to give evidence of how colonization is a problem? So if you don't have us to acknowledge what the problem is, how can you solve the problem if you don't know what the problem is? So I come into this conversation more of actually defining this as colonization is very destructive to land. And I can see this in many levels. And I feel like because it's not mapped out and it's not charted based on the layers and levels, I feel like it's going over people's heads or people are confusing it with decolonialism or people are just using the word decolonization as a safe word for not saying diversity or inclusion. But essentially mm-hmm. how this plays and, and this will thread into talking about inclusivity, too. Let's take a break here and then we can come back and sort of get into Mm -hmm. what you're talking about here and just segue into inclusivity. We'll be right back with Sadie Redwing. InX is a major research project by me, Matt May, as part of the Master of Design degree program at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Episodes and transcripts of this podcast can be found at inx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. Follow InX on Twitter at I-N-E-X podcast. And we're back with Sadie Redwing. And now it's the sports segment. We started talking about about sports uh, imagery and icons. And I was thinking about some of the teams here. And there's a trajectory from the like caricature of Indigenous imagery to some attempt to, to be inclusive. And I can catalog this. So there's the Washington football team, which is now known as the Commanders, dragged kicking and screaming away from, from using racist imagery. I just recently saw... For the first time in a box score, the name Guardians. So the Cleveland Guardians begin play this year. And so this is an example of just the community rallying around changing the, the terminology that's offensive. And then there, there's still more to, to go. And there are lots of names like Braves, Chiefs, Seminoles. Yeah. Some of these teams have found... And actually, Washington did this as well. People who aligned themselves that had an indigenous identity and said that they represent us. And it seems like an after the fact thing, right? It's like being caught out about something and then saying, but no, look. And I think that as teams have evolved, there's been more of an effort really to, if you're going to be using indigenous imagery, that you think about the way that you do it. And the things like the the Arizona Coyotes, I mentioned, the Vancouver Canucks use Coast Salish imagery in one of their logos. And then uh, Seattle's new NHL team. So we, we're starting from scratch. There, there was an older team known as the Seattle Totems. And it had been reproposed <laughs> as the name for the team, which ended up being the Seattle Kraken. And that it got shut down like right away. Nope, not doing that. That's recalling this racist imagery of uh, Seattle had a 
totem pole that had actually been stolen off of tribal land that sat in Pioneer Square until not too long ago. And so they worked with indigenous peoples in the area to develop a land acknowledgement that's read at the beginning of every game, a video that's played at the beginning of every game. They've done one-off jerseys that were designed by indigenous creators, that there's a sense of, and this is the difference in where we make the segue into inclusive design. There are people in the room, to go back to what you were talking about in the first segment, there are people that have a stake in the work that's going on. And I guess I want to start with that. How does somebody who is just beginning to acknowledge that they're leaning on tropes, not just about indigeneity, any area of race, gender, ability, sexuality, how do you dig yourself out of that hole in good faith? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so first I want to say, I think there needs to be a podcast similar to this just on sports (laughs) i kind of want to do that now (laughs) i might call you later for that because okay so being native american and being a graphic designer and when your last name is red wing like the detroit red wings i cannot get away from any conversation which is fine i love sports and i understand where some of the argument comes from around honoring but then also too like There's areas of research that could be done just a little bit better, but I do want to give a shout out to Seattle. My grandma's brother moved to Seattle during the Relocation Act in the 1960s, started a family over there and just loved it. I love going to to Seattle. And I don't know, I don't know if you lived in Seattle during the time, but there was a school shooting, I want to say in like 2014. And one of my cousins passed away from that shooting. And mm-hmm. the Seattle Seahawks did a beautiful honoring for the Marysville shooting. My family is, I want to say Marysville, north of Seattle. And within the tribes, I have cousins enrolled in the Tulalip uh, tribe. And mm-hmm. Tulalip has a lot of partnering with the Seahawks or within their casinos. So in means of seeing that progression because Seattle does a really good job. Uh, see, I don't think Seattle gets a l- enough credit on how well they work within their Native American communities and how much they uh, essentially they probably could do a little bit better. There's a lot of a hole to dig out there too. So yeah. Yeah. What is nice is there's that strong coastal and you have the, the, the strong, like kind of the wood, the, the very wood dense area brings a lot out of, I guess, like maybe like a style, I guess, like music, like Seattle has a strong style of music. They have a strong style and distinction within indigenous visual languages. And I feel like that's a little bit more prominent, let's say within the Southeast around the Carolinas. We don't see much of the prominent style within like Virginia's or just kind of below New England. So I, I give them a lot of credit and I give them a lot of credit of having a nation to nation relationship, whether that's their sports complex, having a relationship with their casinos, but there is some type of nation to nation. We'll get back to that when we talk about inclusivity, but sports, I feel like... And talking about something similar to the Seattle Seahawks, there's like some slight design flows in there that gives some type of evidence of some type of honoring. Now, contrast that Seattle, the Seahawk (laughs) style of a mascot compared to, and just for this sake, and again, I'm going to say Redskin for this sake, so I apologize ahead of time, but I feel like the way that Washington was defending to keep using the word Redskin, it was, it just wasn't, it was so inappropriate. So I'm going to say it like this. If, and again, coming from talking about graphic design, not necessarily the whole aura of those who are very loyal to the DC team, but just speaking in a graphic design standpoint, if DC really wanted to honor tribal communities, like wouldn't they want to buy like a logo from an American graphic designer? (laughs) Like you would think that'd be like one thing. The second thing, and me and my brother are just having a conversation about this, is the profile of the man as the Redskins logo it's so crazy being 2020 and saying that. I apologize for the slur again, but the profile, it's a hand drawing. It's a drawing. Like it's like we man. Okay. So if this is, if they didn't go to be the commanders yet, um, 2020, 2020, we had Adobe, like there's 3d modeling, um, software on there. Like you could have gave some slight improvement. (laughs) Like you could have, we have all this technology and software. Like you could have got that hand drawing of the exaggerated features, like homeboy still looking like from the 1800s. Give us a good 
image to honor if you're actually like honoring the folks. We, we can't get out of that trope. You would think that like someone would gave that uh, gentleman a makeover <laughs> on their helmets right. or something, or at least there's you watch like football now or, or just any type of form of sports entertainment. And they have those graphics or those animations. Maybe DC did have some great animations and maybe they gave them, uh, I don't don't even know the name of the mascot, but maybe I just didn't see it because I didn't really care for it. But long story short, come on, like we have all this technology, like like how there's just even like just beautiful animations. Like I've seen the Kraken uh, logo and just like it's, there could have been some more moderations to to that. um, You know, that that reminds me of just the, the Cleveland mascot, sort of one of the iconic images as they were still trying to push back from doing it was a white person like dressed head to toe as the mascot, Chief Wahoo. And so headdress, beads, the the whole thing. And he's yelling at an indigenous activist that's saying you shouldn't yeah. be doing this. And it's like, that's the thing. That's the whole thing in one picture. <laughs> this is why you don't do this. It's so frustrating because when I try to explain it to somebody, it's just you don't have to mark yourself as a Viking, as a cowboy, when you have to take the census. Here, I still got a mark, American Indian. And then anybody who's indigenous from the country of India, they had to mark themselves as Indian American. If you don't know the feeling of being, having an identity associated with a mascot, then I can understand why you're not sharing any empathy. I want to branch out just a little bit, particularly because what we're talking about is still going on and maybe a little more of a micro sense, but there is... So many high schools to this day, 2022, that are mimicking what we're talking about. So again, like I said, like I've been conversations around like the Chicago Blackhawks, talking about their gentlemen, talking about DC, whatever it may be. You're mentioning stuff like Seminoles and we still got the Braves and the Kansas City Chiefs. And I think what needs to be more prominent, particularly in branding, particularly in graphic design, is you got to give greater evidence on what is exploitating an image and identity and what is not exploiting. And that line gets really blurred. But again, this is why we just need really stronger forms of education so that we're not in this again. And I feel like because that is not taught to Native Americans, we're still a little bit more vulnerable and where that line is blurred in between exploitation and what is honoring. The point I'm trying to make is there's no blueprint for this work, particularly for graphic design and working with indigenous communities. I'm trying to do this work. It's not necessarily maybe develop a blueprint, but just acknowledge that one of the reasons why we're struggling and suffering and talking in circles about conversations is no one has developed a blueprint. That was part one of our conversation. Our interview ran longer than all the others, and I decided to edit it lightly, just like the rest, rather than cut it for length. Sadie covers a lot of the topics that the design community needs to grapple with, and I didn't want to leave any of it behind. This is your opportunity to take a break, maybe have a glass of water, and then pick up part two of our interview. That's all for now. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at nx.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening. <laughs>